Stay tuned for more rock and roll. All right. Welcome back to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. As always, I'm your host, Don DiMuccio. Episode 51 and the first show of 2024. Hope you all had a great holiday season out there. Myself, I spent the holidays as usual with vagrants at the bus station, sharing room temperature eggnog and singing show tunes until chased off into the wintry night by state troopers. I know, what can I say? I'm a sucker for tradition. We're starting off this new year with one of the finest blues guitarists in the business, period. He formed the Austin-based rock and blues powerhouse band, the Fabulous Thunderbirds, which had huge success throughout the 80s. A period, by the way, when his younger brother Stevie Ray was carving a parallel career of his own. But make no mistake, when it comes to authentic American blues and roots rock playing, Jimmy Vaughn has earned his place as elder statesman of guitar by doing it like a good Texan should. Say things to me like a cowgirl would I do tricks for you like a cowboy should You look romantic laying in the hay I need you tonight in a new kind of way When you look at me Uh, With those eyes It makes me start to fantasize Do it to me like I know you could So I can do it to you, baby, like a Texan shoes Riding the range, I think of you I dig your chili, you know it's true Oh, I make big money, put it in the bank That longhorn cat has got a great big tank Do it to me like I know you could So I can do it to you, baby, like a Texan shoe The kind of woman who's above the rest Well, nothing for me but the best You say you need a fella who really can Do it to you good like a Texan man Cowboy clothes Top of my head To the tip of my toes 
been responsible for keeping the blues and roots rock and roll current and in the mainstream for several decades now. As a founding member and guitarist for the fabulous Thunderbirds, he helped open the doors to like-minded artists, most notably his baby brother Stevie Ray, and thus exposed the MTV generation to true rhythm and blues and roadhouse rock and roll with singles like Wrap It Up and their 1986 top 10 hit, Tough Enough. He now enjoys a successful solo career and recently was the subject of the documentary Brothers in Blues, which chronicles his and Stevie Ray Vaughan's meteoric path to stardom. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, one of my musical heroes, Jimmy Vaughan. Hello, Jimmy. How you doing? Oh, doing great, man. Thank you for doing this. All right. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, first of all, Happy New Year. Thank you for being our first guest of 2024. Yeah, when did we do this before? We've never done this before. Oh, 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 I thought we had. Like years ago, years ago. No, no, no. But I do want to start off by asking how you're feeling. I know you went through a bit of a health scare recently. No, I'm, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. I did uh, several shows earlier this year, and uh, everything's going good. Feeling great. How did that manifest itself? I mean, were you on stage or was it at home? What happened? Um, yeah, I was at home. I was at home and I, I got up and uh, I felt weird and I uh, couldn't sleep and I had heartburn. So they took me to the doctor, took me to the hospital and uh, they called the doctor and there you go. And here you are. And here I am. So, <laughs> so I had a quadruple bypass. Quadruple. Now, that must have scared the shit out of you when you first heard that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds... It sounds scary, but I had a great doctor, doctors, and uh, I feel better than ever. Maybe a stupid question, but did the experience change the way you look at your career? Um, well, no, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm going to be seventy-three. So uh, once you get seventy, um, you know, you start thinking about all kinds of stuff. So I don't know, but I still play guitar every day, and uh, that's what I like to do. I'm a very blessed guy, and I have a a great family, and I have twins and uh, older kids, and everything is great. Are they taken after uh, Dad in terms of music? Well, one of them plays guitar. Uh, actually, two of them play guitar. And um, one of my twins is a guitarist, and uh, they enjoy music a lot, and they play piano. 
they've taken piano for several years and they sing. So um, they're very musical. I'm a firm believer that that runs in the family on some level that we don't totally understand. Yeah, you maybe know? we don't. Maybe we don't understand. <laughs> Were your parents musical? Uh, well, my, my mother liked music, and my father played the piano, but he never told me, or I never heard him play. So, I think he was a wannabe piano player, and um, I think some of his relatives or or cousins used to play in. Uh, one of them played in T. Dorsey. Tommy Dorsey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, what did he play? I don't even know. <laughs> well, I want to go back to the beginning a little bit when you were a kid. I'm always interested in how big an influence radio was on musicians. And I mean, you had that great border radio being down there in Texas. Talk about yeah. how, how that inspired you. Well, um, there was a show that came on at 10 o'clock after the news or 1030. Uh, it was on WRR and it was called Cat's Caravan. And uh, it was on till midnight. And then I had a transistor radio. So you can click it on and hide it under your pillow when you're supposed to be asleep. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you can hear it in your bed. So I used to listen to Cat's Caravan till uh, so 1230 or whenever it was. And then I would switch over to WLAC or XCRF with they had the Wolfman uh, Border Radio. XCRF was the uh, Mexican station. Yep. And then I would go to Nashville. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it was famous. The, you know, the Hossman. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, all that. So all that stuff came in pretty clear in Dallas. So, so you're getting all that influence. You're hearing the Tex-Mex stuff. You're hearing blues. You're hearing whatever was on the top 40, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. You know, once you get into it and you, you like it, you, you search it out. And I loved all the blues. And uh, it was still going on uh, when I was a kid, you know. like I remember in my first band, the drummer's big sister came over and uh, she hired us. Uh, we were like uh, 12, 13, and she came over and hired us for her uh, sorority party. And uh, she said, I'll hire you if you learn this new song on the radio. And it was Scratch My Back, Slim Harpo. Yeah. So, uh, Which, of you course, know. you guys covered years later. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. That was uh, contemporary then. Absolutely. Do you have like a clear memory of the first time you heard rock and roll? Uh, I, I had to be, it had to be, uh, I watched Elvis on uh, Ed Sullivan. You know, I sat there with all my uh, mothers and daddies and uncles and everything at a family gathering and sat in front of the TV and watched Elvis. And uh, my uncles played guitar. They liked, um, you know, Merle Travis and uh, Western Swing. Right. And those kind of things. And, uh. And then my dad's side had a couple of uncles that played in bands. So it was just everywhere. It was all around. Did I hear that your parents were kind of friends with members of Bob Wills and Texas Playboys? Well, I think my dad knew a couple of them. And one New Year's Eve, they stopped by, or some of them stopped by the house. And they had a few drinks or something, you know. I don't cool. know. That's pretty cool. 
I know you've told this story a million times about how you got introduced to playing the guitar, but it definitely bears repeating if you don't mind. Well, a friend of mine, a guy that lived down the street, he said, um, if you want to be popular with the girls, uh, you're going to have to play football. And I was like, oh, no, uh, that's terrible. <laughs> so anyway, he said uh, tryouts or next week. You know, I had just really played, you know, by throwing the football around with kids at church or, or something. But I didn't really, I wasn't really a football player. So anyway, so the kids, they said, okay, tryout is on uh, Monday or Tuesday or something. So we went down there. And you know how that is. It's like you're the guys that are really football players are, they're already in the team, but you're kind of standing over here with the guys who are not really football players. Right. Yeah. And so the coach says, okay, let's, let's see what you can do. I'm going to throw you a pass. So the, the coach threw me a pass. I mysteriously caught it. And so I'm running and they piled on me all the football players, and I broke my collarbone. Oh. So it's not a very good football story. <laughs> but uh, but I went home, and uh, my dad had to come home from work and let me in to the house. And he said, uh, he said, I just want you to stay out of trouble. I don't know what we're going to do with you. Just play your guitar, I guess, because mm. I had just gotten a guitar from a friend of his, and it had like three strings on it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like an acoustic. Right. So he said, just play the guitar and keep out of trouble. And so I, I've actually been playing ever since. Yes. So, but I think the trauma of the broken bone, the collarbone, and being at home, which I was happy about on one level. Yeah. I just, I've been playing guitar ever since, so. It just blows my mind. If you hadn't gone to that practice, the whole world would have been deprived of so much great music. Oh, well, thank you. How were you at school? Oh, I was really good through about the fourth or fifth grade. I made like straight A's. Yeah. And then I got to where I didn't like it anymore. And I was interested in other things. And so I, I eventually quit, you know, uh, like in the ninth grade. Right ran off and uh, became a guitar player, so which I don't recommend for all you other kids out there. <laughs> Being in Dallas, I would imagine a lot of the big acts came through to town. Did you catch a lot of concerts when you were young? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I saw the Yardbirds a couple of times. I saw Hendrix, and that was when uh, Hendrix did the, uh, the tour, and he had Soft Machine opening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I saw a lot of local acts. There was uh, a band around Dallas called the Nightcaps. And I had their, it was my first album that I ever bought was Wine, Wine, Wine by the Nightcaps. Yep. And so I actually learned how to play off of that record. I learned how to play bass, rhythm guitar, and lead guitar. And actually a little bit of drums. So... Yeah, I heard you say that in another interview, and I actually sought out that album. I was able to get a copy. It's it's great. It's a great record. Yeah. It still sounds good. Yeah. You talked about Hendrix. I know one of the first bands you worked with that was kind of took off a little bit in your area was the Chessmen. Right. And you guys actually ended up playing with Hendrix. Yeah. Uh, the, the Chessmen, they were uh, 21, 
and uh, they had made local 45s and everything. And and then uh, they got me in the band. One of their guitar players drowned in a boating accident. And so the guitar player, Johnny Peebles, came and he knew me and I, you know, I knew all the stuff. And so he said, uh, why don't you join up? We've got a lot of gigs coming up here. So that was my first paying gig, really. Big age gap there. I mean, my God, 14 to 21? Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, if you look at it like that, but uh, I was pretty good uh, when I was a teenager. So, Oh, I'm sure. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it all made sense if you'd have been there. For example, getting into clubs, was that an issue at all, being underage? Uh, well, at first, when I was in my first band, my dad got us a gig six nights a week in the summertime at a club called the Hobnob Lounge. So we had we had been playing a lot of gigs, but just not professionally. I guess if you make money, you're yeah. professionally. Right. So when I got in the Chessman, I was making three or $400 a week in the 60s. That's good money. That was pretty good money. Yeah. So anyway, it, it's it's been fun, but I was just playing guitar. That's that's all I was doing, having fun. And you made a decision, to, like you said, quit school, and you left home. Was that like a split decision? Or was that something that you were kind of thinking about for a while, and then finally did? Well, uh, did you have a plan, or was it just like? No, I had no plan. I had a gig. I got in that band, yeah. and they had apartments and uh, cars and girlfriends and super b lamps and oh, yeah. know, they had charge accounts at the at the music store and so you know it was it was wild were your parents upset they must have been yeah they were upset and i just split i told them that they were asking me to play and they were like well what about school and so i just ran off yeah and so and meanwhile there's a little brother involved Little Stevie Ray. Well, yeah, I, I ran off and I left him my Telecaster. And they, my parents were worried that he would do the same thing, you know, so they clamped down on him. And I think that made him even try harder. Sure. You know, uh, you, know you, you got to understand that, I mean, we could play and we had gigs. So it was fabulous. Yeah, it wasn't like a big gamble because you was, knew there was something was, there. It was, it was tough on my parents. Yeah. And uh, I would hate it if my kids did something like that to me. But, you know, things are different. So sure. I don't know. <laughs> this brings up an interesting thing now. I mean, obviously, there's a lot written and said about the way Stevie looked up to you as little brothers do. And he was driven with, with the passion that comes from, you know, healthy sibling rivalry, I would imagine. Yeah. You know, um, he watched me learn how to play and then take off. And I left him a guitar, so he could always play. So he just had to he had to go to school and, and uh, work on his guitar playing until his time, you know. Do you have a memory after you left home and your career was taken off? Do you have a clear memory of that first time when you heard Stevie play where you said to yourself, shit, he's done it, he's nailed it? Well, after he got out of high school, he moved down to Austin where I was living, and uh, he came and stayed with me for a little bit, 
And, uh, you know, he got a gig. And I remember going over there and seeing him play, you know. And then after a couple of months, he really took off, guitar playing-wise. Right. You know, there's a little difference about play. You know, you can play pretty good at your house. But once you get on stage with the band, it really comes out. You have to really do it. You know? Right, right. So... And I think the coolest thing about the dynamics of the Vaughn brothers is that you have both guitarists who approach it differently, a lot differently. I mean, with you, I hear a lot of T-Bone Walker when you're playing. And him, you hear, you know, Abbott Collins, a bit of Hendrix in there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think what happened was, now, it, it's, it's, it's useless to me to compare our two playing together. You know, when you first start playing... You try to play everything that you can, and then you sort of, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but when you first learn how to play fast, you have to learn how to play fast just to be able to play fast once in a while, okay? Right. Like, uh, I knew this guy before I ran away from home who was named Julian, and he played uh, on a Telecaster, and he was the fastest guitar player that I'd ever seen in Dallas. He was blistering fast. So I would uh, just try to play fast a little bit. And Stevie would, I would play the guitar and then put it down and then he would pick it up. So I don't know how you explain all the, uh, the styles and everything. Right. But playing fast is just a phase, Right. It's a phase. You have to learn how to do that. But you don't necessarily want to do that if you're trying to make a statement. If you're trying to write a paragraph, you have to have phrasing. And when you listen to your favorite musicians, usually they have phrasing. It's like they're talking to you. Right. Yeah. And so you have to learn that. And you have to play a bunch of crap in between. Of course. <laughs> It's part of the learning process. So anyway, I don't know. Uh, it's 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 ridiculous. Stevie was a fabulous guitar player, and he he loved played the guitar, and it shows. And so you know how that is. I mean, this is the music industry. They always like to compare people. They try to play Clapton with Hendrix. Sure. The fact that you're related, forget it. It's it's the laziest comparison in the world. <laughs> right but you can't because it's the two different people that sure. you know, two different approaches but right. you know you're talking about phrasing there's another word that comes to mind when i hear you're playing especially and that's tone uh-huh you got a great tone and not all of it some of it comes from the gear i remember you know in one of my guitarists that was in one of my bands gave me an airfall once about the gauge of strings that stevie ray would use so how much does gear play a role in what you do and what the sound you get well, uh, Stevie used big strings, and for a while there, I used big strings too, experimenting, but also he would tune to E-flat. Right. So there's a lot of tension lost, you know. Right. But, you know, that, that was like a feather in his cap. Like, people went crazy. Oh, he's, he's doing all this stuff, and he's... He's using bigger strings, and you know what I mean. It, it was all, uh, you know, the story. Right. It but has- I mean, if you if you tune to E flat, you're you're losing a lot of tension. Right. So he had big strings, and he would tune to E flat, and 
it made for a beautiful tone. Right. And now, what about you? What kind of amps do you? Well, you know, I've I've had all kinds of different amps. I used to have matchless, and I would look uh, for different stuff all the time. But I use basements now. I've used basements for several years, and that's the original amp. Oh yeah. You know the Fender basement. I mean, we can argue and say that uh, there was an amp before that, a Fender, mm. but uh, but they cop. You know, Marshall. Every amp company really copied the basement, I right. think. Like that tone that you get on Full Time Lava is just <clears throat> amazing. I mean, it's just so fat and round. It's just beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Well, thank you. And you're not big on effects, I noticed. Well, on once too many, you use like the Leslie. Yeah, I used to have a Leslie with a, a Fender Leslie cabinet. I did that on once too many and a hundred's not enough. Great song. And, and a few other ones. Yep. Uh, but they have tremolo gadgets that do the same thing now. You yeah. Know? I have two basements and uh, a reverb a unit that has tremolo and reverb. You know, it's got three or four different ones. It works just great. Sure. Well, we mentioned the T-Birds. How did you hook up with Kim Wilson initially? Well, I was, I was playing at a place on Sundays called Alexander's. It's in South Austin. Uh, it's not there anymore. I used to play out there every Sunday with my band. It was Lewis Cowdery and Keith Ferguson, and uh, we had several different drummers. And one time, Kim Wilson came. He heard about us from this lady that we knew named Shirley. And so Shirley brought him out there to a jam, and he sat in with us. And he pretty much stole the show on the harmonica. The other guy that I had was really good. He was great. But Kim, you know how he can take over when you see him on stage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he was, he pulled out his chromatic and he did all the tricks. And uh, I just happened to know all the tricks too. So, so anyway, we hit it off and we later on, we got a band together. And uh, we said, well, okay, what are we going to call it? And I said, oh, how about the Fabulous Thunderbirds? Because uh, you can be Thunderbirds, but you have to be fabulous, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So, so that's, that's when we started, later that year. What are we talking, 74, 75, around there? Yeah, I, I, I can't even, uh, something like that, yeah. So anyway, yeah. We, had a great, we had a great run. We made a lot of records, and we had a fabulous time. Clearly. So, Kim still plays great, and uh, he's still all over the place. Well, so. one of the things that's interesting to me, it may not be interesting to anybody around the country, but I'm from Rhode Island. I live in Cranston. Me and you know a lot of the same people, I think. Doug James was on your records. Oh, yeah. Many records. Yeah, that's right. And he played with us on an album. Great connection there between Austin and Providence. They make a quick mention of it in the documentary that the T-Birds played mostly in your own area and, interestingly enough, Providence, Rhode Island. What was that connection? Well, what happened was is we went uh, up to Boston and we got a gig at, uh, what was the name of that place in Cambridge? Uh, um, I know what you mean. I, um, I'm drawing Well, we played, we played Bonnerettis and we played around the Boston area. Yep. We got a gig at uh, 
that one place and that's where we met the room full yep and so we met the room full they were on the show and uh somebody had the brains to uh, put us together the room full and the t-bird so you know after after we heard them they were fantastic and uh you know if we didn't do it they did it you know what i'm saying right so we ended up making records with their horns and uh we we did all kinds of stuff so they they were fa fantastic and fabulous and of course duke i started in 1990 so we kind of missed the boat when it came to seeing you guys all the time you you, you were national stars by then but i'd heard all the stories oh yeah you know stevie ray used to come in jimmy and kim would come in you know <laughs> that was a, a great time we missed it uh what was the place that we played in in uh providence there was lupos yeah lupos yep. yeah we we would play at lupos uh with the room full and we would just tear it up I bet. we would have so much fun did you ever and, play the uh, last call saloon i think so there were always great rooms back then yeah you know and this kind of leads to the next thing anyone under 40 may not understand or believe this right but there's always been that kind of insipid lousy pop music scene that oversaturates the radio and all that but right in the middle of that were you guys and stevie ray and george there were good straight cats on mainstream radio something that would be unheard of today i remember mtv played all your videos you guys did the mardi gras special in 87 yeah that, i mean what a magic time is that well i I, th I think that kim and i with the record company and with the t-birds we just wouldn't go away so finally the guys at epic and uh cbs and all that tony martell yeah tony martell said uh you guys are great and we're gonna sign you and we're like yeah right <laughs> we didn't believe it so he brought us in his office and signed us up and uh it was in incredible you know i think that'll ever happen again or is oh i don't know i don't know i don't want to say it won't but yeah but you know i i i think it with the reason we made great music and everything was because we were having fun and we really loved what we were doing right and and uh the t-birds you know we were riding around in a van uh i remember one time we'd done a east coast jaunt and uh we got down to uh washington dc and we were having to go to uh chicago or somewhere and we got on one of those roundabouts yep you know with, they don't really have those in texas right maybe they do now you know but, yeah yeah but back then we we would just drove it around and drove around and drove around like 10 times and uh, and we pulled over and the guy said uh you have to take the exit <laughs> <laughs> so we said which way is texas <laughs> and he goes he pointed and he said okay go that way but we had a lot of great times yeah it took a while to uh realize that i didn't have to drink you know right there's a lot of drinking going on back then and everything else so especially then yeah the first time you ever stepped on the stage sober had to be scary uh yeah well i i didn't really i mean there was a few times when i tried to play uh drunk but 
I would usually do my drinking afterwards. Smart. You don't want to be sloppy on stage by any means. I don't know if it was smart, but... Well, uh, you know, if, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you leave the T-Birds? Um, well, I didn't plan on leaving the T-Birds. What happened was I got uh, Tony Martell at Epic Records said uh, Stevie was hitting big and we had just had uh, Tough Enough and uh, we were still going on that and uh, Tony Martell at Epic Records and some other guys over there wanted uh, Stevie and I to do a record together. And we had been talking about that since I was a little kid, you know, like <laughs> sure. um, my dad would, you know, whenever someone would come over, like a friend of his, he would say, go in there and get your guitar and show my friend what you can do. And and Stevie would grab his guitar and we'd both play. Right. And then, you know, the the guest would say, well, that's pretty good, kids. Uh, maybe one of these days you can make a record together, you know. Yeah, right. So uh, when we did Family Style, that was when it came together. And then uh, before the record came out, Stevie got killed. It was before uh, cell phones hit the market. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stevie was opening for Eric Clapton. And Stevie called me and said, hey, you got to come up here. We're going to be on the show with Eric. And he wants you to come. And everybody's going to come. And we'll have a good time. So I flew up there and met him. Uh, you know, it was before cell phones. So Stevie said, I got to go home to back to Chicago. We were taking helicopters from Chicago to uh, Alpine Valley. Okay. Yeah. And that's what pretty much everybody did unless you were on the bus. So he had to go home and call his girlfriend. And so he got in the helicopter and they crashed. So that's how it happened. You mentioned that, you know, you didn't know at the time when it happened. The gig was still going on, and you just went to the hotel. Yeah. See, we all flew over there together, and uh, there was a helicopter going to go early back to the hotel. You know, the gig was over. Right. So he took the first helicopter trying to get back early. But you know, like if there's, three, if there's two or three helicopters... And there's a lot of people, so you, you can't get that many people in a helicopter. So there were several trips. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he took off with a bunch of uh, agents, Eric's agents. Right. And they crashed right into the mountain. And we didn't even know. Like, the helicopters knew, the pilots knew, but we didn't know. How'd you find out? Well, I found out the next morning. When I was flying home, we flew over O'Hare. I asked the pilot, I said, see if the other helicopter flew by here, not knowing. And so when I got home to the hotel in Chicago, they called me early in the morning and told me. Just horrible. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was actually unimaginable Yeah, that it could happen, you know. And that's the way it felt for years. And uh, I'm still, you know, kind of in denial, if you know what I mean. I do. I mean, feeling-wise. I do, yes. I yeah. know it's true, but I don't want to believe it. Sure. Right. 
I don't want to linger on what happened, but were people held responsible? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was just, uh, you know, planes go down. I don't I don't know that, uh, you know, I don't really want to say. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Let's talk about music. Absolutely. (laughs) When Family Style came out, were you going to tour it? Sure. Yeah, we were going to tour. I mean, I remember the record came out really good and we were all there when we mixed it. And it sounded fabulous. And uh, the guys from uh, Epic Records came over. They were all excited. And and, uh, they said, uh, this is going to be a smash. And, you know, a lot of times when you turn a record in, they don't say that. (laughs) They go, oh, shit. What are we going to do with this? Where's the single? I don't hit the single. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't don't hear a single. Right, right. And so, uh, but it was, uh, to our surprise, it was different this time, and they were all very excited. And uh, and then, uh, you know, before it came out, you know, Stevie got killed. So I forgot where I was going. Um, Had he not, there was going to be a tour. Yeah, yeah, we were going to have a tour, and uh, we just hadn't really talked about it. We were kind of arguing over, well, what band do we use? Do we use... Because both bands, the T-Birds and Stevie's band, were kind of wondering who was going to play you right. know, on the tour. And, and the answer was, none of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was what we were thinking. Yeah, yeah. We were just talking about it, that's all. Right, right, right. right. We hadn't decided anything. And, uh, and then uh, the unimaginable thing happened. So. Right. Now, over the years, you've you, you've been in a couple of movies, which is interesting. People may not right away remember that. You were in Great Balls of Fire. You played, uh, I forget the guy's name now. Uh, Jans. Right. Yeah, the guitar player for Jerry Lee. Right. So That's a little different, huh? Yeah, well, that was, it was an opportunity. And uh, we were hanging, we used to record in Memphis. You know, that was all going on in Memphis. And Dennis Quaid. He was Jerry Lee. He got us in. I think him and the producers picked who would be the actors. They didn't want actors. They wanted musicians who wanted to be actors. Right. You know, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. We went back to Memphis and recorded it, and uh, we were all huge Jerry Lee fans. So we, who isn't? We, yeah, who isn't? And so um, we got to go see Jerry Lee a few times, and... It was really a great fun. And you were in Blues Brothers 2000 too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that one. <laughs> it's different than rock and roll. I mean, it's a lot of hanging around on movie sets. A lot of waiting. Oh, it's it's totally different. Yeah. And uh, that's when I decided that I had the best gig, you know, being a guitar player. Sure. <laughs> I didn't really want to be an actor, and that was one way to find out. Any chance of getting back with the T-Bridge? Um, I think it would be fun. We haven't really talked about it, so. It took two guitars to replace you. Remember that. <laughs> well, but, you know, don't forget, on the T-Birds records, I would always overdub, so I would always play rhythm with myself. Ah, uh, you're being diplomatic. Okay. 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 <laughs> Let's talk about my box set. Let's talk about the box set. So, they just came out uh, earlier this year earlier last year but it's just been out for not long 
It's called The Jimmy Vaughn Story. There's 98 songs on there with a picture book. There's uh, an LP and uh, CDs and songs all the way back to uh, Before the T-Birds that I recorded. And then uh, a lot of stuff. 98 cuts. Wow. Let me read uh, some of the people that are on the songs they're on with. Alvin Collins, Art Neville, B.B. King, Bill Carter, Billy Gibbons, Bo Diddley, Bonnie Raitt, Buddy Guy, Charlie Musselwhite, Deborah McClinton, Denny Freeman, Doyle Bramhall, Dr. John, Eric Clapton, James Cotton, Jimmy Rogers, John Lee Hooker, Lazy Lester, Little Milton, Lou Ann Barton. Of course, it's got the fabulous Thunderbirds and the Vaughn Brothers and Stevie on there, too. Well, my grandmother used to say you can judge a man by the company he keeps. And uh, <laughs> you got a lot of legends there, and you are a legend, my friend. It's an honor to have spent some time with you. All right. Thank you for the interview. I enjoyed it. Even if it takes all day for you 
four debut solo album, Strange Pleasure. That's Boom Papa Boom by the great Jimmy Vaughn, who I want to thank for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Now, Jimmy wanted me to remind you all that the good people at Bear Family Records have released a limited 2LP, 45 RPM white vinyl edition of Strange Pleasure, and it's been given the audiophile treatment by mastering legend Bob Ludwig. And we're talking 180 grams of analog goodness. Also available, the Jimmy Vaughn Story, a career retrospective box set consisting of five CDs, one LP, two seven-inch singles. It's like over six hours of music from his days before, with, and after the T-Birds, including a slew of special guests like Bo Diddley, John Lee Hooker, James Cotton, Eric Clapton, and the list goes on and on. And both items can be ordered from the links available in the show notes. Don't forget, if you're enjoying these interviews, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review. You'll be glad you did. Come back next time and join us on the next episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Well, I don't live like a king, and I don't drive a big car. The gypsy woman was right, but she said I would go fast. Just wait on time, baby. I'll be there one day. Yeah, and until I get there, baby, I'll rock and do it, hope and pray. Well, you say you stick with me, baby. Stick with me through thick and thin. I know someday, baby, my bad I just wait on me, baby. I'll be there one day. Yeah, then until I get there, baby. All I can do is hope and pray. Stick with me through thick and thin I know someday, baby My bad luck has got to end Just wait on time, baby I'll be there one day Yes, and until I get there, baby All I can do is hope and pray Well, I live the life I love And I love the life I live The life I live, baby Yeah, all I have to give So just wait on me, baby Do us hoping